Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist, and in this future-gazing podcast series, we consider speculative scenarios and provocative prophecies to give us a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. For the next few months, we're taking our inspiration from articles in our annual publication, The World in 2020. In this episode, we'll be asking... What does the World Health Organization hope to achieve by making 2020 the year of the nurse? Countries like Singapore are now saying we really have to make this profession a desirable profession for young people. And how is China planning to catch up with the rest of the world by 2050, on the football field, that is? The whole idea behind this game is to cultivate young talent and to identify the most promising football athletes at an early age. But to start this edition of The World Ahead, we're heading out to sea. When people think about transport pollution, they tend to think about cars and planes. But what about shipping? At the start of this year, the International Maritime Organization imposed new environmental standards on ship owners. To discuss what this means, I'm joined by my colleague Charles Reed, who covers planes, trains and automobiles and also ships. So what's the big environmental problem with ships? What are they doing that's so polluting? So in theory, in terms of carbon emissions, ships look like a very clean form of transport. They produce only about 3% of the world's carbon emissions. And if you're trying to move a container of goods halfway across the world, it's the cleanest form of transport as far as carbon emissions and global warming goes. However, if you look at sulphur emissions and nitrous oxides, shipping is far, far dirtier than the headline carbon figure suggests. So is that where the restrictions have been tightened then? Exactly. So the International Maritime Organization, the United Nations Regulatory Agency for Shipping, introduced the first major environmental laws on sulphur. So it used to be that shipping firms could burn fuels with sulphur contents of up to 3.5%. From the 1st of January this year, they've either had to switch to fuels with less than 0.5% sulphur content or use other fuels. Or if they are going to use the high sulphur fuels, they have to scrub the emissions out of the fumes before it's released into the atmosphere. So what are the bad consequences of putting all of this sulphur and nitrous oxides into the atmosphere? Well, it causes local air pollution. And this is very bad for anyone or anything breathing it in. Scientists estimate that up to 595,000 premature deaths and 14 million cases of childhood asthma are caused by sulphur from ships and is each this, year. Is this all over the world or is it mostly concentrated in you know, port cities where you've got a lot of ships going in and out and burning a lot of this stuff? Yes, it's near ports, near coastlines, particularly in very busy coastal routes. But it's also in places which we wouldn't associate with large container ships, but which are very, very popular cruise ships such as Venice, which now get a lot of pollution from these ships. So it's a problem which is concentrated in certain places, but is spreading around the world. It sounds like a good thing that they're not going to be able to put all this stuff into the atmosphere. How are shipping companies handling this? Are they generally switching to the cleaner fuel or are they going for the scrubbers? This has been a big, big debate in the shipping industry because scrubbers are not necessarily cheap. 
And also, this is an industry which is underwater in terms of debt. It borrowed a huge amount of money before the last recession when shipping rates were very high. However, since then, shipping rates have fallen as trade hasn't grown as much as companies expected. So some companies are introducing scrubbers to get rid of the sulfur in their fumes. But most shipping lines are relying on switching to cleaner fuel with 0.5% sulfur or less. Environmentally, this is a good thing. You've got less horrible stuff going into the atmosphere that's making people ill. And yet, there's this strange sort of, it's the opposite of a silver lining, isn't it? (laughs) When it comes to the climate impact of this. So what does this mean in terms of the climate impact? Sulfur dioxide is not a normal greenhouse gas, and it doesn't work in the same way that carbon dioxide does. Carbon dioxide increases global warming, and it's virtually impossible to get rid of it in the atmosphere unless you grow more plants or suck it out the atmosphere. In it doesn't, it doesn't kind of decay on its own. It, it just, doesn't just decay. It's not like, say, methane, which disappears after a while. Sulfur instead contributes to global dimming by helping to seed more clouds in the atmosphere. This reflects more rays of sunlight back into space, reducing global warming. So this is a bit like what happens when a volcano goes off as well, isn't it? Because they put sulphites into the atmosphere. And we're all familiar with stories from history where there's a year without summer because there's a volcano that's gone off and all the crops die. So shipping, it turns out, has been doing this very subtly. And it's actually prevented the planet from warming as much as it would have done. So how much difference? Now they're going to stop burning this stuff. How much is this actually going to warm the planet? About 10% of all sulphur emissions are made by ships. And these new rules... If they are enforced, shipping's contribution to net reduction of global warming will fall by 80%. So in short, this will reduce quite a big counter effect against global warming that humans are producing. And we hadn't realised we were relying on this, but it was shielding us from the, the true impact of our carbon emissions. And obviously, if you do then get more warming, which we are, and the other consequences that flow from that, crop failures and higher sea levels, that's going to harm people. So they're not going to be breathing in horrible stuff and dying from that, but they could be dying from other things. Has anyone looked at what the sort of relative harm of those two approaches are? And might we actually want to, you know, encourage the ships to go back to burning this horrible stuff just when they're far out at sea or something like that? Has anyone done that calculation? Well, the International Maritime Organization, which is bringing in these rules, hasn't done any comparative research on the amount of people who would die due to local air pollution versus the number of people who would die due to higher levels of global warming. One option is to let ships burn these fuels far out at sea where it's too far away from the coast. Some countries still oppose that because sulphur emissions do contribute towards acid rain and there's ecological problems in some countries such as Scandinavia due to lakes and forests being poisoned by acid rain. So in the long, long term, the best way is to move to fuels which are clean from both carbon and a sulphur perspective. So what are there? What are the options? Could we have electric ships, sort of nuclear powered ships? Some people are talking about going back to wind as well. What would you bet on? One which is relatively unlikely is nuclear, partly because just as with humanity's experience of nuclear power plants, yes, it might be commercially feasible to build some of these, but the cleanup costs are just way, way too high. OK, we'll take that one off the table then. What about, so uh, what else? That's off the table. Another one is LNG, liquefied natural gas. So this is cleaner both in terms of carbon and in terms of sulphur. The problem with it is that it's 
very, very highly explosive. Right, okay. The opposite of heavy fuel oil. So this is seen as a stopgap in the industry. There has been some interest in it, but it's, this is seen as a stopgap technology. Because the industry's set itself a target, hasn't it, for reductions? What is that exactly? The IMO has set a target of by 2050, carbon emissions from ships must be half the level they were in 2008. So they want to cut emissions of the industry as a whole. So that means they're possibly going to be looking at you know, higher 70 or 80% cuts from individual ships. Okay, so LNG, slight problem that it blows up. Nuclear, too expensive to clean up. What's left? What are the sales again? We're going back to sales? The problem with traditional sales is that they require too much manpower and they tend to make ships very unstable. Now, modern technology has produced a new solution called rotor sails. These collect energy from the wind by spinning around using some very complicated aerodynamic effects. But that somehow pulls the ship along. Exactly. And is anyone actually trying these things? Several companies are trying these out, including Molomersk, the world's biggest container shipping company. Okay, then. So maybe wind in new form. Is that pretty much the only alternative to the exploding LNG and the unpleasant nuclear? The industry thinks a longer-term solution would be hydrogen power. The problem is that hydrogen power in ships hasn't been commercialised yet. There needs to be much more technological development of this. And doesn't hydrogen also explode like LNG? Well, that's a problem that hydrogen can explode. There's a question of how you would store it. There's a question of how do you produce hydrogen without causing more carbon emissions than other fuels. OK, well, it sounds as though they've solved one problem, but they've just opened the door to a whole load of much bigger ones that we'll have to keep an eye on over the decades to come. Charles, thanks very much for explaining it all to us. Thank you very much. Next, the World Health Organization is celebrating the 200th anniversary of the birth of Florence Nightingale by designating 2020 the Year of the Nurse. A lot has changed in 200 years, and today's nurses often do jobs that were traditionally done by doctors. The Economist spoke to two nurses from Queen Alexandra Hospital in Portsmouth in the south of England. My name's Sarah Parkinson. I'm an advanced nurse practitioner in cardiology. And I've been an advanced clinical practitioner since 2008, stroke 2009. Within my role, I've got the responsibility for running the fast access chest pain clinic. I'm seeing somebody and I'm looking after them completely. So they come into a clinic, I'm assessing them, I'm diagnosing them, and I'm making a management plan for them. And that's not what they would traditionally expect a nurse to do. My name is Millie Davies. I've been a qualified nurse for five years. I started training to be an advanced critical care practitioner or an ACCP about a year ago. The job really came about because there was a more sort of shortage of middle grade doctors. Um, so the role is to bridge the gap really between the nurses and the doctors. Most people assume that nursing is this narrow set of skills that nurses just learn on the ward. They think of nurses as the sidekicks of heroic doctors. In fact, nursing is a highly technical profession. Slavea Chankova, healthcare correspondent here at The Economist, has written about the year of the nurse for our World in 2020 annual. I think the profile of nursing has been a topic of concern for a number of years. And the World Health Organization finally appointed a chief nursing officer two years ago. Okay, so they've got a chief nursing officer and they're trying to generally sort of raise the profile of nursing. What's actually being a nurse like in 2020? How is it different? Many nurses do things that people think only doctors can do. For example, they are the first responders when, when a patient who is really critically ill is unwell. Nurses specialize in cardiology, emergency care. They do really highly technical stuff. 
in America, for example, two-thirds of anesthetics given to patients are administered by nurses. Here in Britain, there are nurses who do some types of abdominal surgery. In sub-Saharan Africa, there are nurses who are trained to do cesarean sections with success rates close to those achieved by doctors under similar conditions. Presumably, part of what the World Health Organization wants to do here is change perceptions of nursing. How are they going to actually try and do that this year? They're doing a number of things. They're urging hospitals to create professional development programs for nurses. So more of them actually become leaders because often what you see is that the chief nursing officer in a hospital is a man, even though the vast majority of nurses are still women. Something like 10% of nurses only are men in most countries. Some countries are having um, various campaigns to raise the profile of nursing by all sorts of means. So, so what's an example of that then? The National Health Service has been running a campaign. It's basically educating people that there are all these different roles that nurses can play. And some countries are doing some really fun stuff. Singapore, for example, has commissioned documentaries and television dramas and even a nursing anthem to kind of raise the profile of the profession among young people. Everybody's got someone to lean on. Very catchy. Why is Singapore doing that then? Have they got a problem with recruiting nurses? Pretty much all countries have that problem. There is a massive shortage of nurses, both in rich and poor countries. And for a long time, rich countries like the UK or America have been dealing with the problem by recruiting nurses from poor countries. But that cannot continue forever. So countries like Singapore are now saying, OK, we really have to make this profession a desirable profession for young people. And their campaign has been hugely successful. They've had a vast increase in the number of young people applying to nursing schools. So hopefully we're going to see more of this happening because poor countries are already crippled by nursing shortages. Well, as well as training more nurses rather than just taking them from other parts of the world, another thing that people seem to be looking at is whether the role of nurses and doctors as well could be automated. Can we have robots that look after old people and do some of these tasks? So how does that fit in with all of this? Well, there are some sorts of uh, some types of technology which will make the life of nurses easier. So, for example, some hospitals have iPads that map how a nurse should move around the world. However, the nature of nursing is about empathy and a human touch. So that by itself makes nursing a very tough profession to be replaced by AI or technology. What do you think Florence Nightingale would think if she came back in 2020 and saw all of this? I think she would probably be upset that there is such a shortage of nurses, that the profession has lost its glamour. But she would be thrilled to see how the profession is changing, that it's all about technology and science. And she herself was the first woman admitted to the Royal Statistical Society for doing a very clever infographic that showed how infections were deadlier than wounds amongst soldiers in the Crimean War. Oh, so this was the idea that more soldiers were dying from infections in the Crimean War than from enemy action. And she thought that the best way to get this across was with this chart, which she thought would affect through the eyes what we may fail to convey to the brains of the public through their word-proof ears. That's surprisingly modern, isn't it? She's doing data journalism and she's kind of going for a, a visual image, a meme. 
We think of her as a nurse. She's also a pioneer in infographics and statistics. So in a way, although she's the first nurse, she's a very modern nurse because she's you know, much more than just providing care in the ward, isn't she? Yes, she was well ahead of her time, I think. Surveyor, thanks very much. Thank you, Tom. Finally, China's president, Xi Jinping, is obsessed with world domination when it comes to football, or for our American listeners, soccer. As China has the largest global population, its standing on the football field is a little embarrassing. And internationally, there aren't that many footballing icons that fans can name from China. My name is Elizabeth. My favourite soccer player is Neymar. I like him because he's a pure love of football. My name is Yu Chenhu. My favourite soccer player is Zlatan Ibrahimovic. I like him because he has very unique ways of scoring, including his famous scorpion. My name is Han Chen, and I'm starting to be a CFO. My favorite player is Cristiano Ronaldo, and like him, of course. So my favorite soccer player was probably Lionel Messi, because since I was very young, he was already very famous and very skilled, obviously. The reason that I like Neymar is not only because of his great skill, but mostly due to his confidence. Those are the voices of students from the WLSA Shanghai Academy, and their idols aren't Chinese players. But plans are afoot to radically transform China's competitiveness. James Yan, China correspondent at The Economist, has been watching from the touchline. So what's the plan exactly in 2020 for China to increase its influence in the world of football? Well, in 2019, China's education ministry announced that it would designate up to 10,000 kindergartens across the country as, quote, kindergartens with football characteristics by the end of 2020. As its name suggests, the term refers to a kindergarten that specializes in football instruction, typically reserving at least half an hour to an hour each week on football training for their students. And so headmasters who are interested in this scheme must submit a three-year plan to the government explaining how they will foster enthusiasm for the sport and build up skills. The whole idea behind the scheme is to cultivate young talent and to identify the most promising football athletes at an early age. Right, so it sounds like a classic example of long-term thinking from the Chinese government here. What's their eventual aim? Well, their eventual aim, as President Xi Jinping announced in 2011, is threefold, namely to host the World Cup, to qualify for the World Cup, and to win the World Cup one day. The problem is that the national football team has been a perennial disappointment. China's squad is currently ranked number 76 in the world. China appeared only once in the World Cup in 2002, and it failed to score a single goal that year. The consistently embarrassing performance of the national team has touched a sensitive nerve in a very patriotic country that sees itself as a great power. And why is it that Xi Jinping has decided that he wants to focus on this particular sport? Is it just because he's interested in it? Or is it because it's the nearest thing we have to a global sport and he wants China to be at the top of the game in every respect? I think both of those reasons are, are valid. Xi Jinping is a passionate football fan, and Chinese people know that. It's also true that football is very popular in China. 
famous teams like Manchester City and Bayern Munich, for example, have more online followers on China's version of Twitter, Weibo, than on Twitter itself. I had no idea. Of course, that, that does make total sense. And it's not just the kindergartens, is it? So that's obviously nurturing very, very young talent. But there are various other initiatives as well, renovating football pitches and so on. So there's a grand strategy here. Yes, there's a grand strategy. I would say so. The Chinese government has announced that it will renovate or build 29,000 football pitches on school grounds by the end of 2020. So cultivating young talent is a is a longer term strategy. It may take years or even decades before China finds its own equivalent of a Ronaldo or or Messi. In the short term, sports officials have resorted to an interesting stopgap measure which is to grant Chinese citizenship to promising foreign players who can then play for Team China. So how many players have they done this for? Is this quite widespread then? Yes, so as many as seven foreign players are in the process of naturalization. In 2019, the government granted Chinese citizenship to a Brazilian player called Elkison. He is the first player without Chinese ancestry to play for Team China. In fact, Elkison just might be the best player on Team China in China's current World Cup qualification campaign. The Brazilian, or former Brazilian, now Chinese player, has scored a quarter of all goals for China. Okay, so we can probably expect more of that in the short term, but in the long term, they're counting on the kindergartens. James, thanks very much indeed. Thank you, Tom. That's all for this edition of The World Ahead. And you can read more about these stories in The World in 2020, our annual, which is available on newsstands and at shop.economist.com. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist.